0: Welcome to On the Middle East, Almonitor's weekly podcast on the big stories of the day. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and today we'll be looking at the ongoing protests that have been rocking Iran's clerical regime. The unrest and the regime's brutal response to it were triggered by the death three weeks ago of an Iranian Kurdish woman, Masa Amini, who died in police custody. Massa Orjina, as she was known to her Kurdish family, was brutally beaten by morals police because her headscarf apparently did not cover all of her hair. With us here today to discuss these developments is Giar Gol, a correspondent for the BBC who has covered the protests closely and is himself a Persian Kurd. Welcome to our programme, Giar. It's great to have you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So, Ziyar, you've been following this story from the get-go very closely. Can you please tell us what's the latest on the ground now in Iran?
1: Well, as we talk, there is still packets of protests in different parts of the country here and there, and particularly when the sun goes down, the protesters come out in different cities, particularly in Tehran. But. The epicenter of the protests in the Kurdish region of Sanandaj. Sanandaj is a capital of Iranian Kurdistan. And since day one, Masa Amini was I many say killed. That's the fact. Has been protest, and we could say the slogan, it was chanted there, "Genjian Azadi, Woman Life Freedom has been replicating across the country and beyond its border. And now, as we talk, there has been a mass protest in this city. And my contact on the ground, they were saying it looked like a martial law. There was so many police, militias loyal to supreme leader, revolutionary guards have been placed inside the city just to prevent the protest. But what I was hearing from some people, they said our young people are going out, and even the parents plan to go out with their children just to make sure they wouldn't be shot at. But the footage we have seen so far in the past few days, it shows the security forces indiscriminately actually firing tear gas into the people's houses through their windows, and even the videos we have received, it shows live bullet has been fired at people's house that that cut through double glazed door and opened the wall and hit the chair. So it shows, uh, it is very intense. But as I said, in some part of the country, there have been some strike by the oil worker a couple of days ago. But as I said, in the Kurdish region, as we talk, there is a mass strike also bazaars, shops, all close in numbers of the Kurdish cities like Kermashan, Sanandaj, Sakhas, Bukan, and Piranchar.
0: So there are two parallel and intersecting dynamics in play here. So on the one hand, we have this sort of broad mobilization against the regime and a sort of outpouring of pent-up resentment. Uh, you know, felt by people because of the repression, the terrible economic conditions, the lack of opportunity. At the same time, of course, women are at the forefront of this because they, you know, bear the brunt of it, you know, suffering all the same things that all Iranians do, but at the same time as women, you know, facing the consequences, you know, on a far grander scale. Yet, as you mentioned, the epicenter of these protests appear to be in Iranian Kurdistan. Masa Amini was uh, from Kurdistan. And we have this slogan, Azadi," which means life, uh, women, life, freedom. Can you first of all, um, help us understand a little bit what's going on in Kurdistan? What are the people's grievances there? What is the situation of the Kurds there? And is this really threatening to the regime, the fact that, you know, we're seeing so much resistance now in
1: Kurdistan? I think for the first time, even the Kurdish community in Iran, they feel their grievances are being heard by other sectors of different community across the country. For the first time, they feel they have a common cause. And also in other side, the, the, from those people who are in Tehran and other places, for the first time, I think they really listened to the cause. Because for so long, for 40 years, the government narrative that any movement in Kurdistan, any, uh, any protest for justice, any protest for a basic rights were labor. Labeled as a separatism, labeled as a terrorism, labeled as this organization are linked to foreigners, but I think Mahsa Amini being a Kurd, and, and she has a
0: Kurdish name, right? Exactly, Gina.
1: At home, she was called Gina, but obviously, in her birth certificate, was Mahsa, and. Being buried in Kurdistan and for the first time men there clumping instead of reading the verses of Quran, which is very traditional in the Muslim world, it was kind of actually opposing the uh, regime because run by clerics. In the same time, women in that small city of Sakas when Gina Massa was born, throwing up their headscarves and chanting against the regime. Many of those people who are watching what is happening in Iran, they believe if Mahsa wasn't a Kurdish woman, we may have not seen this protest in this scale. Because in the past, numbers of Iranian women, non kurds were pretty much in the same fashion, were brutalized. They were killed in custody or even some of them acid were thrown in their face because of their you know the way they were wearing clothes you know we never saw such a protest in large scale across the country in every corner of country in cities we never thought for example one of the cities there was a protest was Qum is the center for all religious scholars of Shia world and also I never forget the moment uh, in, in the city of Mashhad a young girl on top of a police car, car while other police cars were burning, shouting, we don't want Islamic Republic, we don't. That city was the most revered Shia city in Iran, Mashhad. Amazing.
0: One Amazing. of the
1: imam of Shia's bay there. And also, it was the birthplace of Iran's supreme leader, Ali Khamenei. So it says a lot. I think what happened in the Kurdish region, really, the people, the footage they saw, women, removing the headscarf and for the first time in Sanandaj people shout Jinjian Azadi, women' life, freedom. I think the message was so attractive, and it seems the society was ready for that. Many women were ready for that. They thought this is their moment, this is their time. They have to go out. That's why quickly did that slogan spread like a wildfire across the country. And so, can you, you tell was... us a
0: little bit about the, you know, the origins of that slogan,
1: Jiar? Well, obviously, if you remember, there were Saturday's mothers, some of in in Turkey, the Kurdish mothers who their loved one in the 80s and 90s, they were disappeared, arrested by the Turkish state and but never, they never know what happened to them. So they were gathering, and that was the slogan and obviously it was theorized by Abdullah Ocalan, the imprisoned Kurdish leader of Kurdistan worker partner who has been in Turkish jail I think more than two decades for now, and I think he says in his manifesto in in democratic community he later obviously he has a change of mind he he dropped he ditched the idea of greater Kurdistan for this democratic community because he believed Middle East is. So many different ethnicity, religious. There's diversity there. You cannot have a state. I'm I'm obviously challenging the statehood, but I think he believes this slogan "Jinjian Azadi." A society will be free only when the woman is free, and obviously, this slogan was also used by Kurdish fighters by YPG. she the Women uh, Defense Unit of Kurdish in Northern Syria, when they were fighting against ISIS. I heard that slogan, Jinjian Azadi, woman Life, Freedom. And obviously they had another one, Bar-Khodani Jiyan, Resistance is Life. And that slogan it was Pivotal, in my opinion, to attract so many young women who already fighting their own father, their own brother, because it was a male dominated society and obviously religion also doesn't help women, particularly in the Muslim world. So many women saw it as an opportunity to rise up and they joined the fight and they were pivotal in Defeating ISIS. Just, I'm pretty sure, Amberin, you have been in northern Syria, Rojava, you have been in Kobani, just walk through Kobani's yes, of graveyard. Course. How many? It's not just poster girls. They were fighting, they were commanding unit, they were fighting the front line. The commander of Operation for Raqqa was a woman. And I think they saw the woman, moment, and women used that slogan, and it was attractive as I said, they defeated ISIS, but the Kurdish community in Iran already knew about this story. Already there was a lot of neutral political activities in Kurdish region. Men and women, both they knew about it. I think that's why we say if it was happening, Mahsa was being buried or wasn't Kurdish, possibly we wouldn't have this slogan. Today we have. And the Kurdish people there, because of Obviously, there is an injustice in the entire country in Iran. There is an economic disparity, there is inflation, joblessness, oppression, lack of freedom in the country. But in the Kurdish region, the oppression, the oppression is much more than the rest of the
0: well, country. Well, also because they're they're mainly Sunni, correct? So there's that kind of discrimination, another layer of discrimination that's added by the fact that they're not. You know, part of the Shia majority. But getting back to Öcalan, uh, I mean, how influential, in fact, is Abdullah Öcalan and the PKK? We know that the PKK has an uh, Iranian branch known as uh, Pajak, the Party for Free Life in Kurdistan, uh, that was quite active at one point and managing to recruit a lot. Uh, so, how, how strong is the PKK inside uh, Iranian Kurdistan? Especially when you compare it to the traditional parties, the KDPI and Komala.
1: Yeah, I think don't forget. I, I believe KDPI Kurdistan Democratic Party of Kur- Iranian Kurdistan and Komala are still influential. Are still have. It's not like northern Syria, We say. Okay, uh, YPG when YPJ were dominant. I strongly believe those traditional. For example, KDPI is the oldest political. Party active political party in Iran. They have a history, they have root culturally, and I mean, rooted in the culture. And also, Komala, for example, in in the, in the Sanandaj in the Kurdistan region, the leftist organization, they have a root. But Pajak also have been quite successful to tap in in places like Ilam Kermansha, which traditional Kurdish party never had a chance to have that base or foothold there. Or for example, in Urunya, which they speak Kurmanji, very close to PKK, where it's close to the Kurdish movement in Turkey. But having said that, Pajak is also being successful in other cities in Kurdish region, and they have a network. We can't say, to be honest, we can't say how influential they are because you have to have a proper census. But, but the reality is the fight against ISIS in Syria uh, it gave them a chance, because many of them, they went to Syria to fight against Islamic states. And this I- is
0: Iranian Kurds you're talking Iranian, about, right? Iranian
1: Kurds, they call it from Rojhelat, which is the eastern Kurdistan. Many people weren't there. I met many of the commanders were Kurds from Iranian Kurdistan. They were fighting ISIS there. They were actively involved in rebuilding even, even the region. I think the reality is. Pajak has been very active in organizing, spreading its network, underground network. That's why, possibly, we heard that slogan in Sanandaj, in other places in Kurdish region. And actually, now I'm listening to some of the footage coming out from that region. There is a lot of slogan is very familiar to me, which is, you know, Jengjana Zadi Barkhodan. Uh, Gianna resisting his life. There is many, many of those. Yet,
0: uh, yet, yet Jihanna, sorry to interrupt you. Uh, the KDPI and uh, Komala would argue that the PKK has a sort of transactional relationship at the same time with the
1: Iranian regime. Well, there is a criticism toward them. I mean, obviously, many people believe, well, when Iran is attacking Occurs when PKK has such a power compared to other because of the size, they have Kurdish fighters from all parts of Kurdistan, and the population of Turkey is much larger than any part of Kurdish region. They have more fighters. Why don't they fight against Islamic Republic? of Iran As a matter of fact, I posed this question to some of the PKK commanders. They said, we don't want to open another front line. We already are in a full fight with Turkey. Turkey oh, using drones yeah. and military attacking us. It just is a suicide if we open another front line. And I, by the way, during this time where there was an unrest in Iran, many people asked why the Kurdish Peshmerga fighters don't go back and fight the Revolutionary Guard, who is shooting people in the street. It's not. It, it wasn't a question posed by. Kurdish people posed by other Iranian people. That's fascinating. Because because for the first time, they thought these people are not here to hurt Iran. These people are not separatists. For the first time, they, they saw Iranian Islamic Republic revolutionary guards, militias, security forces, the enemy of people, because they saw with their own eyes, they were beating up a woman you know, holding up her hands, removing headscarf and being thrown and, you know, through at the pavement and his head, her head hit the pavement. People were so angry. People messaged me, why the Kurdish Peshmerga, Kurdish fighters, don't come back, attack these thugs? That was the kind of sense. And actually, many of the um, Kurdish uh, leadership, if you talk to them, whether it's Pajak, whether it's Komala, whether it's KDPI, they say, Islamic Republic of Iran, particularly Revolutionary Guards, really wants to militarize this unrest to say, okay, it was orchestrated by this separatist group, although none of those political parties yeah. will have separation of Iran in their manifesto.
0: Yeah, their slogan is democracy for Iran, autonomy for Kurdistan. Well, right? actually,
1: Isn't they have that? changed it lately to, to, to uh, a federative, a federative federative democratic Iran even they have ditched the, the democracy so if I'm sorry the the autonomy autonomy so what is happening in Iran if you see a revolutionary guard just a week after the protest picking up attacking to Kurdish bases of Iranian Kurdish parties reside in Iraq in different cities killed 11 people so the feeling among the Kurdish leadership and actually many Iranian wars revolutionary guards deliberately trying to take the public opinion attention from what is going on inside universities in Iran, because they're being attacked by militias, what is going on in the streets of Tehran and northern Iran and other cities, to outside of Iraqi border, in one hand, shift the public opinion attention, in other hand, show its muscle we are capable we have the
0: conundrum as ever of course in such situations where you have spontaneous sort of um uprisings is you know who's going to lead them and there is that kind of vacuum isn't there in in iran today you know you have this public reaction but it's not organized Mm -hmm. so in the end it seems like the regime will prevail is that right Or have we crossed the Rubicon here?
1: We don't know yet. This is Middle East, Ambrine. You know it. You know, overnight, things could change. Overnight, so many things could happen. I couldn't say that. But if we judge the situation compared to the last, the regime don't hesitate to suppress, to kill, to keep its system in place. They did it in 2019. 1,500 people were killed. Some of the families of those people who were been killed, simply they wanted to know what happened to their loved one. They are imprisoned prison, those parents. So we cannot expect from the regime say, okay, we are sitting in our list. We will sit down and listen to your grievances. I think one thing they know is suppressing the uprising. That's what they have done in the past 40 years. Yeah. But as you said, yes, there is no leader. The problem with Iranian communities is uh, even abroad, they are so divided, different political parties, they haven't been able to come together in one voice to call for strength, yet in the Kurdish region, I think this is important, maybe is a lesson for the rest of the country, when you have a political parties who have a legitimacy, who have a uh, people, uh, you know, listen to them, they could organized they could have a mass protest kurdish political parties they have a for the first time even pajak which normally they don't get along well with other kurdish political parties of iran of iran they come together with mahsa amini jina died in one voice they call for general strike in the kurdish region just two days after mahsa mahsa died on friday for monday entire kurdish region I'm talking about four provinces in Iran, Elam, Kerman Shah, Kurdistan, and Azerbaijan Garbi. All together, most of Kurdish cities, large and small, they shut down their stores, they shut down bazaars, they shut down corner stores in one voice they send a signal to the signal to, to the central government. And also people in a small town like Divandara, just one street, came out, confront the police, confront the security forces. I think the image came out from that small city. And the other people across Iran's side, I think they were encouraged, we could do that too. And that's why so many people came out and joined the fight. As I said, it was in Tehran and replicated. And then like a wildfire, it spread across the country.
0: Well, of course, the problem is that the leadership of those Iranian Kurdish parties are sort of hostage to their um, hosts, (laughs) to the Iraqi Kurds, who of course are under tremendous pressure to uh, sort of restrict their actions by Iran, who, you know, actually attacks the Iraqi Kurds when it decides things have gone too far and could well do so again. So it's a very complex situation, and as you say, it's the Middle East and we don't know what will happen. Uh, But what we know for sure is uh, that, as you said, the regime will certainly keep tightening the screws. Well, thank you so very much for being with us here today, I really appreciate it and I know how busy you are and you have a news night program. Uh, a deadline for that, uh, so I must let you go. Thank you, thank you, Gia.
1: Thank you very much, thank you.
0: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Hagedorn and I'm the State Department Correspondent at Al Monitor.
1: And I'm Joe Snell, I'm Al Monitor's video editor. Let's admit it, this past year has been difficult to stay on top of the news and sit through what's accurate and what's misleading. Let Almonitor help you. If you care about the Middle East and North Africa, you should consider listening to Monitor's audio series On the Middle East with Andrew Parasoliti and Amber and Zaman, and On Israel with Ben Caspi. You can now watch our newest video podcast, Reading the Middle East with Gilles Capel. You can subscribe to these series on your favorite podcast platforms.
0: And through a host of free daily and weekly newsletters, we offer
1: a range of perspectives with the highest journalistic standards. You can subscribe to these newsletters at almonitor.com. As an award-winning media service headquartered in Washington, D.C., Almonitor has a network of over 160 contributors around the world. So if you haven't done so already, be sure to visit almonitor.com, where you can find all of these newsletters and podcasts, along with first-class reporting and analysis.
0: And this brings us to the end of this week's episode of On the Middle East. I thank you for joining us today and hope you'll tune in again next week.